Life in the street. Life in the street. Life on the sidewalk. Life on the sidewalk. Life at Columbus Circle. Can heal you, praise be Jesus. Heal you too, a scar of goodness. Heal the blind and heal the lame. I can save you, cure you, make you whole in His name. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, December 6th. 2020. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Encore Magazine, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. With us today, we have two very special guests. Lynn Ahrens and Stephen Flaherty are joining us uh, on our Zoom call on a Sunday morning. Lynn and Stephen, thank you so much for joining us on Broadway Radio. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. Thanks for having us. So, uh, I I mean, I'm not going to list, I typically bring people on and list their Broadway credits, but if we listed your Broadway credits, it'd be 11 a.m. and we'd have to wrap up. (laughs) So, but our fans, (laughs) people who listen to Broadway Radio and This Week on Broadway, certainly know all that you have done from Once in this Island to My Favorite Year to Ragtime to... (laughs) I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I can't stop myself. Anastasia. (laughs) So, um, but we're here this morning to talk about a new project that you uh, just have had released on Broadway Records called Legacy, which is two separate song cycles. Two separate song cycles. That's why that does that. So, uh, (laughs) So tell us, how did this all come about? Um, well, I, I received a small book as a gift from a friend of mine and I was leafing through this book and it was a lovely little, um, book with pictures of an old barn in upstate New York that happened to be in a town fairly near, um, our house in upstate New York. And I was very taken by these little, um, diary excerpts. Uh, written by a farmer in the 1800s, uh, just prior to the Civil War, who farmed in this area and who kept a very, very detailed diary. And as I read it, um, you know, I started to get very fascinated by the the notion that someone keeps track of every day of their life, every every religious instinct, every... He wrote down... This man's name was Philo Blinn, and his wife's name was Helen. And um, he wrote down his thoughts on religion, his thoughts on slavery, his thoughts on um, his family. There were family dramas inherent in what he had written, um, the death of a child, the, his wife's illness, 
Uh, and there was also a lot of joy. And I, I just, I got so fascinated by these excerpts. And I went to the, um, the uh, Columbia County, I believe it's called, yeah, the Columbia County Historical Society, where they have his actual diaries in, in his handwriting. Wow. And yeah, and, and from there, I tracked down uh, his descendants, a fellow named George Dardess, who lives in Rochester, New York, and who is a published author, uh, a Roman Catholic deacon, an expert on uh, Christian Muslim relations. He's an absolutely fascinating man. And we got permission from him to musicalize some excerpts from his forebears diary. So that's how the first to be. And, you know, it's, it's such an interesting, I don't know. I just became absolutely taken with, with the story of someone's life and, leaving behind this handwritten document of a whole life um, is very, you know, seemed meaningful to me. And then the other um, song cycle is called A Boy with a Camera. And it's based on photographs that my father actually left behind. Um, He was a very good photographer and he photographed New York City in the the, uh, 40s and 50s. And I think, um, you know, it, it, I wanted to honor him in some way. And, and so we did some meditations on his photographs and what they seem to evoke in terms of music and, and lyrics. And somehow these two song cycles, um, one, the, 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 far, the uh, farmer's diary is 12 excerpts, one for each month of the year. And um, the photographs, the photographic essays are, uh, there are fewer of them uh, and, they seem to celebrate New York, I think, for us. So it seemed like a great time to, um, you know, put that out into the world right now, sort of a meditation on a year and a celebration of New York. One of, I'm sorry, one of the songs in the second one is set in Columbus Circle, and that's the title of it. And I was wondering, actually, this is uh, a movie I think that Peter knows better than me. Are you aware of the, the film It Should Happen to You? Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> from, from Be- because I, I was thinking that probably it was right around the time that uh, your your father would have been <laughs> snapping away. In Columbia. I think so actually, interestingly, he also did. He was the cinematographer on a movie called um, Coney Island, USA, uh-huh. which um, won you know some prizes at uh, Cannes and other film festivals. And I think you can find it now on YouTube, believe it or not. But it's a day in the life of Coney Island. So I think we're all interested in New York and and the joy of it and, and obviously the sorrow of it and, and all that. And, you know, just the, 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 the legacy that, that cities and that human beings leave. It would be a nice coincidence if indeed he took a picture of a theater where one of your shows eventually played. Did that happen? Well, I don't know. I've never seen that exactly. I, no, I haven't seen, either. No, no I, and I've seen most of his photographs, but, uh, but he did take a bunch of pictures of door canteen. And those uh. are... The, the league actually has those in their in their um, archives. Those mm-hmm. Wow! <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, aside from the excellence of the songs, you have the greatest singers possible uh, for for the Farmer's Diary. You have Jason Danieli and Marin Maisie. and for a boy with a camera, you have Stephen Pasquale and Sarah Uriarty Berry, who both of whom I, I guess in recent years Stephen has. Um, had a, a couple of really good cast albums with uh, Bridges of Madison County and Robert Bridegroom. But Sarah, um, you know, for just for whatever reason, 
she's she's got such a beautiful voice and she she doesn't have a lot of recordings as far as i know so i it's a, a really a real treasure to have her and uh, to have that team uh, of Stephen and her uh, uh, doing a boy with a camera. Uh, yeah, we, we actually recorded a uh, boy with a camera um, the year following um, my favorite, um, my favorite year, the year following uh, mm-hmm. a man of no importance, which is uh, a show that we did with Terrence McNally at mm. the theater. And uh, that's where we got to, to meet Stephen because uh, he was like the young uh, male ingenue, if you will, of the piece. Yeah. And uh, he just had, his voice is, it's just like a really exciting kind of heroic voice. And that, uh, the, the um, boy with the camera, that that cycle, that's that's more sort of pop in feel, I would say, where the, the first cycle is much more like of an art, art arty kind of art cycle. And uh, Stephen's able to really straddle those two wor- worlds of the classical and the um, the pop, and uh, it, it was great just to be able to spend time with these uh, recordings again. Well, in fact, uh, since sixteen years have passed, at least with the boy with the camera, um, how did this recording happen? Did we at a party and mention something and uh, to an executive, or uh, well, how did it happen? Well, <laughs> I, that's funny. I don't know why I think that's funny, but. Um, uh, we, I, I don't know, you know, over this, the course of this pandemic, Stephen's been far away from me and, you know, usually we get together every day and, and we haven't gotten together really for months. And we just in thinking and, and having some, some downtime from, you know, constantly working on the new show, the next show, uh, you know, it gave us both a little time to think and meditate and think about what, what might be in the trunk. And, uh-huh. you know, we had recorded these two pieces with these four extraordinary singers long ago, and they were demos, but they were beautiful demos. They were done in, in a studio at Smythe and Company, my old jingle company, actually. Mm-hmm. And um, they were, and I remembered them, and we found them. Uh, actually, Jason Daniel, had copies of all of us, <laughs> retrieved the file, and um, they just seemed of the moment sudden, you know, it's everything old is new again. I think it comes down to the subject matter of the piece itself, which is what do you want to leave behind? And um, I think the reason, or one of the reasons we hadn't released these songs uh, until now, were uh, at one point we were thinking that they might uh, be a theater piece. You know, mm. one would be like act one, if you will, mm. and one would be act two. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we had done uh, a workshop with Graciela Danielle at Lincoln Center Theater in 2004. And uh, we used uh, two singers and two dancers. And uh, I think we kept hanging on to the notion that it would be theatrical. And, and in fact, I think it just wanted to be uh, thematic songs that, that lived together. And so... Uh, it, they were they were so uh, beautiful to us on revisiting them. So we thought this is a good thing to leave behind. So that's when we began talking to Broadway Records about this possibility. Yes, and you know, I just I it was interesting and just thinking about speaking with you guys this morning. Um, I was I, it started to occur to me that the song the shows that we were doing right around the same time are also in a weird way related, you know, because we did a man of no importance in 2002. And, you know, in that show, it begins as a memory piece. He, he he's picking up these theatrical props and they trigger this whole story of, of how he came to be where he is 
in um, then we did Legacy. We, we wrote these songs in 2004, but we were simultaneously working on Dessa Rose, which came out the following year. And that's an oral history, you know, which is also about handing down a story to the ones to come. And then after that, Glorious Ones, which is clearly about legacy and about, you know, uh, singing mm-hmm. about, you know, why I was, you know, the fact that I was here and what I'm going to leave behind. And and so it, that chunk of time, at least for me, you know, was a time to think about those things like your body of work and, and what it's all about. And I, I just thought that was sort of interesting. It hadn't occurred to me that the shows that wrap around uh, legacy all have a, have a kind of thematic, uh, you know, propulsion to them. And on that note, the, uh, the, the second cycle is sung uh, by Sarah and Stephen, but the last song in it, Something Beautiful, is about a tree. Uh, yep. And it's and, and and talk about legacy and leaving things behind. It's sung by Marin Maisie, and the oh gosh, I really almost lost it when I heard it. Uh, the lyric is, "And my roots go deep in this place. I know, though I may be old, still I grow. For I was put here to make something beautiful, make something beautiful before I go, and to have." her to have mm-hmm. that memento of her singing mm-hmm. that is just just extraordinary yes I, I, I actually i actually remember the night that we recorded that it was uh at 54 below and i was on the piano and she came up and we, we i don't even think we did a sound check i think it was one of those kamikaze evenings where everyone just sort of showed up and we uh did the recording and uh she was speaking about her voice teacher uh she she uh I hadn't heard this, but, she, but it was all about her voice teacher and what her voice teacher had taught her. And it was about lineage and the idea of passing on from the uh, teacher to student. And that's, that really was what I think she was thinking of while she was singing the song. But it's, it's an exquisite live recording of, mm. of Marin in action. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and 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 by the way, if I ever need anyone to write a song about a tree, I'm going to get you guys. Because <laughs> <laughs> between this and and what's on this island, island sure. <laughs> yes, it's it's my theme. You know, I'll t- I just as a point of interest, the the that song is based on a, a photograph that my dad took of an old willow tree in Central Park, and um, it the, the tree, the picture of the tree actually reminds me of my father because he had a sort of a twisted. He he had a limp. Because because he had a, a, you know, was born with a birth defect that gave him a severe limp. And the twist of the tree reminded me so much of my father's posture that um, that's where the song came from. But then, of course, Marin, you know, made it her own, which was so wonderful. And that's the actual photo that's in the booklet that comes with the the CD, right? right? Yes, that's that's the photo. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the two of you um, met it was at 1983 at the Lehman Engel uh, BMI Musical Theater Workshop. Yes, we we sort of eyed each other across a crowded room in 1982, <laughs> uh, but we didn't really talk until our work until then. Yeah, it's, I, I moved to New York City uh, directly from college. I went to um, uh, Cincinnati College Conservat College Conservatory of Music, <laughs> and actually, speaking of Marin, uh, Marin and I moved to New York City on the same. Uh, year, month, and day. So I I remember that day so well. And, you know, and uh, within six months, uh, Lynn and I were writing together. At first, when I I came, I was writing uh, book music and lyrics uh, 
because in Ohio, nobody else <laughs> wanted to do that. So by default, <laughs> I was writing everything. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, is I was very interested in collaboration, which is something I had never done until that point. Mm. So we began uh, working um, in May of uh, 83, which was for the, the last class assignment at, at BMI. All right. Now, uh, can you actually pinpoint a point when you knew, whoa, this isn't just one show or two. This is going to be something we're going to be doing for quite a long time. We are going to collaborate now and forever. Well, you, well be, being Irish Catholic, you always assume that everything that's good is going to come <laughs> to an end. <laughs> you know, you're always waiting for like, when is the drunk uncle going to show up to, to the party? Or when is it all going to, going to be taken away from me? So I had to learn just the whole concept of uh, not only trust and faith and the idea that you, things could be uh, sustainable and that uh, good work could be get more good work. And uh, it took me a, a while to feel that, honestly. I think it's just a, it's obviously a personality thing. But uh, I think very shortly on, like after Lynn and I had w- began working on a project, which never happened, uh, there was something about the process and uh, just working together. And how we were very different people and very different, we had different ways of working, especially at the beginning. And yet there was a, a really cool way to interface and uh, the work that was coming out was exciting. And uh, I, I at first thought that you had to put everything that you knew and every single measure of music that you wrote, you know, like, <laughs> Look, I have technique, you know, mm-hmm. and I realized you can't do everything you want to do in any one song and any one piece. And Lynn would say, and wisely so, she would say, oh, well, that'll be another piece that, that that'll be for another show. And just the idea that there would be other shows, uh, uh, you know, it, it sort of made other shows happen. Just believing that there would be other shows. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know that I ever had a specific feeling of, you know, we're going to work together forever, but I do know that the first time I ever sat down with Steven to write the very first song that we ever wrote, which wasn't a very good song, but I had written a lyric and he put it on the piano and he looked at it and then he just put his hands on the keys and then he just started playing a little something to go with this lyric that I had written. And I realized I really had a very, very strong moment of aha. This Mm -hmm. is what I have been looking for because Mm -hmm. he was a lyricist and he understands how words work with musical notes. And there was such a sensitivity to, you know, the words and the punctuation. It was a comic song. It wasn't anything groundbreaking or anything. And it wasn't a very good comic song, but you know, there was just something, um, you know, that I saw in his approach that that I that I felt I wanted to hear more of. So I do remember that specific moment very clearly. Stephen, um, you had mentioned that you uh, came from uh, the College of Music in Cincinnati uh, to New York. Uh, what was the time frame in between uh, when you came to New York and ended up in the uh, musical theater workshop at Lehman Engel? Oh, it, it was it was instant. Uh, there's actually a little odd anecdote about that. Uh, I met uh, Lehman Engel whenever I was a college student, and uh, I was working on a show at Cincinnati of my own music and lyrics. And he happened to come by to do a series of master classes for the performers. And this was in 1980, and uh, I think. I must've been like 19 or 20. I was a, like a sophomore. And uh, he said, Oh, I would like to hear some work of student composers. And luckily I had been in rehearsal with a double cast show. So I had you know, plenty of things to show him. So I, I chose three songs and uh, 
he basically said, I, I really think that you have a gift and I think that you should drop out of college and you should mm. come to New York right now. And at that point I had a, I was very big into trying to complete things that I had started. And I, I, I said, no, let me come in two years once I graduate. Uh, and I'd like to, to join your workshop then. And so whenever I would be in um, New York City for trips or whatever, I would always drop by the workshop. And uh, then the week I was to move to New York City, which I just assumed I would knock on the door of BMI and be in the workshop, I picked up Newsweek magazine and it said, died, a layman angle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so he had, he had passed and I, I was freaking out. So I called, um, called up the, the workshop and I said, is it still happening? You know, called BMI. And they said, yes, but you have to audition for it. And I said, oh, that's fine. When are the auditions? And they said, uh, 10 a.m. this morning. Wow. <laughs> And I was in Pittsburgh, which is my hometown. And I basically convinced, I won't give the name of the person, but he, he, was, he had power at BMI at the time. I, I said, I, I, I'm, I really believe I'm supposed to be in this workshop, but I can't, I, I can't make it, you know, because I can't get there physically. You're just going to have to accept me, uh, you know, sight unseen. <laughs> I just said that. And I, I, sounded, I must have been either very convincing or very desperate or both. <laughs> and, but, but they let me join the join the workshop. So it was really after it was the fall after I had graduated college, and you know could scrape up enough money over the summer to move, and I did. And that's something that about Stephen that I think not everyone knows is that uh, at least for a little bit he was the pianist, musical director for Forbidden Broadway. Yeah, well, I, I was one one of many. I mean that that was the, the these uh, little periods in time and. Um, uh, the regular pianist at that time was Philip Fortenberry. Mm. Who, we got to be uh, great friends, and he uh, played both um, Ragtime and Susicle. And David Chase, who's a wonderful mm. music, music director yeah. and su supervisor, and we worked uh, together on uh, Anastasia. He did all the dance music, and so and uh, and a lot of the alums from Forbidden Broadway we worked with. We had uh, Nora May Ling and Roxy Lucas, both in mm -hmm. my favorite year, and uh, Michael McGraw in that show as well. So it's uh, it was great. I, I, I love that. And yet, and yet, um, <laughs> um, I've been uh, the critic in residence at Cincinnati for the last 25 years or so. And you may not have noticed this, but I certainly have uh, with the wisdom of afterthought. But there is an Aaron Street right on campus. There is? I've never gone down that street. There is? <laughs> yep. Spelled really? the, ex like, where, where is the exact same where. I don't know, but I actually have a picture of uh, the uh, street sign, so I'll send it to you. But wow. um, yeah, you never noticed it, huh? You never saw it. I must have been going down other roads. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> That's hilarious. It's a very nice street. <laughs> That's wild. I mean, my, my time at Cincinnati, um, both Marin and Liz Calloway, came through and you know they were they were only like maybe one semester each there but uh you know right ahead of me was Jason Gron Faith Prince and you know it was a really wonderful time and everybody was just beginning you know their their creative lives so it was it was a really fun time Lynn let me ask you about your timeline because um 
we had put out the word a few weeks ago that uh, the two of you were going to join us uh, this morning, and uh, some listeners had emailed us various questions to ask you. Uh, uh, and one of the things that con- consistently comes up is Schoolhouse Rock. I'm sure that it comes up for you all the time. All the time. <laughs> so, but you were you wrote the Schoolhouse Rock stuff long before uh, you ever met Stephen, right? Oh yes, yeah, um, yeah. I. I I was fresh out of college, and um, my first job out of college was as a secretary at an advertising agency. And it was it was you know talking about the coincidences and and, and little gifts of life. The agency just happened to be uh, producing uh, this little show called Schoolhouse Rock. They had the ABC television account that they did advertising for, and they brought this idea to uh, the powers that be at ABC and said. Um, the president of the agency's kid could remember all the words to rock and roll songs, but he couldn't remember his times tables. Mm. So they pitched a little educational three minute show to ABC and ABC said, sure, go ahead and do that. So they had done a, um, you know, the uh, multiplication rock uh, songs with a wonderful composer um, singer named Bob Duro. And then I came along as the secretary and I, I was really bored. Uh, and, you know, so on my lunch hours, I would bring my guitar into work and play and write my own songs that I had begun writing when I was in college. I, you know, sort of taught myself guitar and I would, I would play and sing on my lunch hours. And one day one of these uh, creative directors came by my little cubicle and asked me if I'd like to try writing a song for Schoolhouse Rock. So, you know, fate kind of plopped me in the right place as at the right time. And, you know, this man happened to be passing by and heard a few chords rising from a, a cubicle. And, um, you know, so it was it was just totally lucky. I also happened to meet my future husband there. So, you know, I, I just was one of those serendipitous little moments in time where I ended up uh, at the right place at the right time. And, and um, you know, from that first song, which I think was the preamble, um, you know, I just went on to write a ton of them. And, you know, I became, there were, there was Bobby Duro and me, basically, we were the two writers for a long time. And then a few other people came in to start writing. But, um, you know, we wrote the bulk of them. Yeah. I have a, I have a 12 year old and a 17 year old. And uh, as well as the Schoolhouse Rock, the impact it had on me alone. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I learned uh, the preamble from there, and my children learned the preamble from there, and our <laughs> listeners are also mentioning that Rob Johnston mentioned that he also was grateful to Lynn for getting him extra credit in a college poli-sci course because he was able to <laughs> write out the whole preamble. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so it's such a thing. But how did you get from the advertising agency to the Lehman Engel workshop? Um, well, I, let's see, you know, I've had this sort of checkered career because once I had gotten some schoolhouse rock songs, uh, you know, a reel together Mm -hmm. songs, I was able to then get songwriting work, um, at other, uh, you know, Captain Kangaroo. Um, I got some freelance work in, in films and it suddenly occurred to me, oh, and by that time I had become promoted. So I was now a copywriter, full-fledged copywriter. Mm -hmm. And it, but it occurred to me that I maybe could be a freelance songwriter and I didn't have to keep a full-time job and go to an office every day. So I, um, I was promoted. Uh, I became a senior vice president at this fairly major wow. uh, advertising agency in December. They gave me my big promotion and I quit in January wow. and went freelance. And so from that point on, 
Um, I started getting a lot of jingle work. I worked with uh, one particular jingle company, writing and singing for a number of years. And during that time, I was also um, becoming a television producer. And as it, this is such a circuitous story. I'm sorry, but you that's know, okay. It's interesting. As, but as a television producer, you know, I was I was producing shows like little drop-in shows like uh, Dear Alex and Annie, the first, um, you know. Uh, uh, advice column of the air for kids and this type of thing, all these different little drop-ins. And in the course of um, doing that, you tend, you interview writers and you, you know, we were doing after school specials and I interviewed a writer named Howard Ashman, who uh. I heard of. <laughs> and I said, what are you up to? And, you know, what are you working on these days? And he said he was working on a musical uh, version of little shop of horrors. And I had seen the movie and I said, wow, that is the strangest and most wonderful idea. You're writing musical. I love that idea. He said, yes. He said, and my uh, collaborator is workshopping some of the songs in this place called BMI Musical Theater Workshop. And it was as if a little light bulb went off over my head. It was like, oh, that sounds interesting. And I just was interested. I had never written anything for theater. I hadn't even seen all that much theater, to be honest with you. It wasn't, you know, kind of a top of mind occupation for me. But I went and looked into the workshop and I submitted, you know, I auditioned for it. I auditioned actually that <laughs> immediately after Lehman Engel had died. And so, and I auditioned in front of Alan Menken, among other people. Um, and I got in. And at that moment, when I wrote my first song for the workshop with a, a collaborator named Randy Klein, who's still around and still working. Mm-hmm. Um, I realized that uh, that's, this is the kind of work that I think I should have been doing all these years. Jingles were great. Children's television, terrific. Advertising, terrific. But this is where my heart is going to lie. I just know it. So that's, that's the circuitous way of, of the path from schoolhouse rock to the BMI workshop. <laughs> We'd like to welcome a new sponsor to Broadway radio. Better help. We have all been through a traumatic 2020, and it's affected all of us in one way or the other. Do you ask yourself, what interferes with your happiness? Is there something preventing you from achieving your goals? We could all use some help, and BetterHelp makes it easy to get that help. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. Connect in a convenient, safe, and private online environment. You can start communicating in under 24 hours. This is not self-help, it's professional counseling, and with BetterHelp, you can send a message to your counselor anytime. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if necessary. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. The service is available for clients worldwide. Another thing is is that there's a broad range of expertise available for which you might not be able to find a counselor locally in many areas. BetterHelp has licensed professional counselors who specialize in depression, anger, stress, family conflicts, anxiety, LGBT matters, relationships, grief, sleeping, self-esteem trauma, anything that you share is confidential. One thing to note is that BetterHelp is not a crisis hotline. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash broadway. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Broadway. Once again, we'd like to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring Broadway Radio. I have to say, uh, two years ago, the 92nd Street Y, the Lyrics and Lyricists series, did a, a wonderful program with Lynn. And it, I learned a lot that night. That was a really great program, Lynn. It, it was. It was. A, oh, guess what? It's going to be released for streaming, and I believe it's on December 18th. It's going to be the free premiere. Oh. I'm making a little announcement here. First oh, time. wonderful. So there you go, everybody. And then after that, I believe they're going to charge a small amount to watch it, but it'll be, you know, on demand. Um, and I'm thrilled about that because, um, you know, it was such a hard thing to do. It's very hard to, to put together a show about yourself when you're <laughs> used to sitting in the back row, you know, and watching <laughs> the show take place down on the stage and to be on the stage, it was very, very difficult for me. Jason Daniel, he directed it. Um, right. My dear old friend and oh boy, he was, he just kept saying, Lynn, you can't improvise. You can't make it up as you go. You have to be in a particular spot <laughs> and you know where the lights are going to be and they have to know what's coming next. And no, you can't wear something different tomorrow night because we've lit for this outfit. And you know, <laughs> it's just so hard. <laughs> I just, I thought, oh boy, when this is over, I'm never getting on a stage again. <laughs> but but I am proud of the show. I, I think it's good. So if anybody wants to see that program, if you missed it at the Y, you can get to start seeing it as of the 18th. Yeah, you had uh, Nikki Renee Daniels, David wow. Harris, Margot Seibert, and Brandon Uranowitz, and Al- Alton Fitzgerald White. And as you said, Jason just did a wonderful job. He did. Directing. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, he really did. All right. You, you mentioned the show that didn't happen. And um, I believe that's Bedazzled. Ah, that, that is bedazzled. That is indeed it. <laughs> All right. And um, the story I heard was at the time that um, you couldn't get the rights. That's, That's true. That's exactly what it is. We, we started writing and the writing was actually, it, it went so quickly and so fluidly. And uh, we were looking into getting the rights while we were writing it. And uh, at the end of the day, we had virtually uh, an entire score and we could not get those rights, you know, so that. That was a big lesson learned on that. And, but yet, uh, there was something about writing a complete score together uh, that I think was invaluable in terms of our, our working relationship because we got to know one another over right, the course of writing that score. Yeah. All right, but my point is, um, I would think now with your reputations and a Tony Award, et cetera, et cetera, that you'd be able to get the rights now. You never know. I mean, the, the thing is that since then, I mean, rights they're little fraught demons that you know come up to bite you just when you least expect it with bedazzled you know we might be able to get the rights but of course they remade the movie so that movie would have subsumed the rights from the original movie Mm. right so then we'd have to go get the rights to a major motion picture as opposed to a little independent british film Mm. and you know and it's also i don't know that we would want to i mean it was such a fun little show that we did but I don't, you know, sort of backtracking in that way might feel odd. I think we've moved on quite a bit from there in terms of our own emotional growth and things that we're interested in doing. So I don't know. You know, it's, it, I guess anything's possible. It's certainly Wait. a good score. All right. Um, maybe not lyrically, but uh, musically, uh, can some of the tunes be recycled? Have they been recycled? Uh, certainly composers. I, 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 I really am not a recycler in terms mm-hmm. of music, musical recycling. You know, I mm-hmm. always... Bottles and cartons, yes, but not sure. <laughs> At a boy. Yeah. But uh, um, 
there, there's always been interest in this score and in this show. So uh, we were lucky that uh, Broadway Records again uh, let us do a, a double live recording at 54 Below a couple of years ago uh, to celebrate our 30th anniversary called Nice Fighting You. And uh, we, we did get to do quite a few of the, the, um, the, the, the songs from Bedazzled on that evening. So there are a couple of them that are available for you to listen to on Spotify. Yeah. 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 But, yeah, but you know, it's an interesting thing. Like, uh, you know, we, we've been talking ab- about the idea of looking back and, you know, what you want to put out in the world. And whenever I look back, I think of that particular show as the, the work of very young writers. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sure. And I, I think that's exactly who I was in my early, early 20s. And, you know, and you, you grow and you change and, you know, you have different interests and, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know that that's a show that represents who I am at the current time. But uh, there, there's certainly uh, some fun songs from from that period. But I, my guess is we'd want to rewrite everything. And the whole point of that show, in a weird way, is that it wasn't rewritten at all. You know, it was very kind of loose and sort of just shot, paint being shot out of a cannon kind of a show. Mm-hmm. All right, now, Stephen, um, as a little boy. Um, are you going to the piano and just um, playing with the keys when you're two, three, four years old? Um, uh, did your parents encourage you to do this? How did that well, work out? Y- yeah, um, they actually had gotten uh, a toy piano for my younger brother. And uh, he had no interest in really in, in that at all. And I went over and I instantly started you know, playing with this little toy piano. And at the same time... Um, we all went to Catholic school with the nuns. And so the nuns uh, wanted to um, move me ahead in a grade because I was doing, I was learning so quickly that they, they, they wanted to me to jump a grade. And I have an older brother who's exactly one year older than me. And my parents thought that was a really bad idea to have two brothers separated by uh, a year in the same grade. Mm-hmm. So my mother years later <laughs> told me that she and my father were looking for something that would thwart me. <laughs> That would basically slow me down. And they randomly saw that I liked this little toy piano. And they said, would you like to study piano? And that had never occurred to me as something that, that you could do or would do. And so they sent me to uh, this um, old lady piano teacher down the street whenever I was seven years old. And uh, that was the beginning of playing. And I, um, she, she opened this whole door to me to music. And then a, a number of years later, I was studying with a very serious uh, college-level um, teacher who basically introduced me to everything from show music to to uh, theater scores to classical music to composition. Uh, he was sort of like a one-man music person, and uh, you know, I, I think of him every day because I, I wouldn't wow. be here if I hadn't met him at that time. Yeah, in fact, I was going to ask if the woman down the street, in fact, got you interested in Broadway, but uh, that didn't happen there. No, she she, she didn't. I, I remember the first time I brought a piece of sheet music to her, and it, it was actually Sugar Sugar by the Archies. How's that? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was playing that on her old piano, and she says, oh, no, it doesn't go like that. And I said, oh, yeah, no, it goes like this. And I, I realized I was, like, improvising and, you know, uh-huh. playing all of the parts that I that I heard that were not on that page. So I think I was writing since I was seven, but I didn't realize it was writing until I was about 12. I have a few questions about ragtime. I guess I'll start off with, I I didn't realize that uh, Stephen and Marin went back so far. So at what point did you bring Marin into the ragtime universe? 
you know, um, she came into audition, but she was one of the very, very last people to audition. And the reason for that was that Garth Drabinsky wouldn't see her. He oh, that's had, right. He had employed her. She was in a tour. Uh, I think it was called Music of the Night, I believe. Yes. Um, and that's it was what an Andrew Weber kind of review. And she had d- done this show for a long time. I'm not quite sure how long, but, you know, let's say six months to a year of touring with this show. And she just didn't want to do it anymore. He wanted to re- renew her contract and she refused. And he was furious. And so he would not see her. And we saw everybody for the role of mother, everybody, everybody, everybody. And finally, I don't know who convinced Garth. It was just like, there was no one left to see. And in walked Marin Maisie. And I didn't know her. I had never met her. And I just thought, well, I'll never hear this song sung as beautifully again. She sang back to before in the audition. This is the best it will ever, ever, ever be sung. And then she, you know, read some scenes and it it was just so apparent that she was the only person that we wanted to cast for the role. There are so many beautiful and talented women in New York, but Marin just was the right one for that role and um, pretty much the last one to be seen for it. it, But it's interesting, you know, we did two readings before with other actresses. Yeah. You remember this? Yeah. Yeah, Sure. And then, and then we, we cast Marin really for the workshop and then she was with it. Till, till the end and yeah yeah I mean she she was unbelievable and you know we we yeah as Stephen says we used other sublimely talented women but um it just it just worked out you know circumstances you know when you cast people you know they're not available or they they're doing your show and suddenly they drop out to do a movie and you know so everything kind of, all the pieces kind of click into place late in the process and and you know that's how she came to be in the show but you know we we became I mean Stephen knew her before but I didn't and I just became so close with her and such good friends and you know to to the very end really um you know she became just one of those unbelievably special people that you you want to have in your life forever you know she was she was great just a great person she she was I I hadn't really known her I knew of her more but Uh um when I, I I, I was aware of her really when she was doing Passion, and for some reason I thought, "Oh, here comes little soprano girl," uh, you know. Mm, <laughs> and she yeah. walked in, and I was so surprised with how earthy she was and how funny she was. And she had many, many uh, different parts to her personality and what she could do musically, and uh, she could also be a clown I- as well. Very and uh, to discover all of this in one person, and and, uh, and also just working with her every day was just. A pure joy. And, so to uh, clarify, Stephen, it, it was only later that you discovered that you moved to New York on the same day. That's <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. That's, that's you weren't right. on the same bus in Port Authority. <laughs> <laughs> well, we we could we could have been, but you know, I I remember that because like every year I would you know ring her or email her and say you know happy moving to to New York Day. Uh huh. Uh huh. <laughs> All right. Since the words Garth and Drabinsky have been entered into the conversation, uh, the question becomes, did you ever suspect that he was um, not on the up and up? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, you know, Garth was a force of nature and still is, by the way. And, um, you know, I think we lived in a fool's paradise, I guess, because, you know, when something needed to be done, he went to Garth and it got done. When something needed to be solved, you went to Garth and it got solved. He wouldn't allow anything that wasn't 
right and wasn't good. And in that sense, he was a fantastic producer. And you just, you felt protected and safe. You know, you also felt that you were always on edge and about to have a fight with him over something, or at least I did. But that's okay. You know, that was fine. And, and you know, everybody has their methods and he is a, a bulldozer. But, you know, he created an aura of inevitable success and uh, inevitable, you know, that the right thing would be done. And nothing was going to stand in the way of making the show what it was supposed to be. And, you know, so, no, I don't think anybody really, uh, you know, suspected that anything was going on, except maybe a little bit when the full page, double page spreads mm. to run in the New York Times. Yeah. And everybody was saying, how is that possible? Nobody can afford that, you know. And, and then you started to hear things like the people in Showboat, couldn't weren't being given new shoes because ragtime, you know, needed the money. And there was the sense that dollar bills were being shifted from one show to another. And, you know, there were those kinds of rumblings, but, you know, I'm, I'm speaking for myself. Maybe I'm just naive, but I, I do remember the day that he got locked out of his offices and I was in shock. I couldn't believe it. And I, I, uh, it was devastating and terrible. And, um, you know, so it, that was it was all quite a saga. And then, of course, what happened thereafter, you know, with Ragtime running on Broadway, Garth in Toronto, the show kind of this orphan show with nobody, you know, kind of nobody running the ship um, and Susical in development being totally left in the lurch. You know, we were we were just too little, you know, a little dingy in a big storm that, you know, uh, sort of sorted itself out eventually, but it was a very difficult time. I, I, I think there were many upsides to what was going on at that time. I mean, the, the fact that we got to record uh, a symphonic suite from Ragtime with this enormous um, symphony orchestra, we recorded it in Toronto and there wasn't even enough room to put all the musicians on stage. <laughs> so they had them in boxes and remotely. I remember a harp being in a box, you know, like, uh, house left. And, uh, none of this made sense to us, you know, but, but I knew that we were so lucky to be in that position. Like our conductor says, how's this happening? I can't figure this out. And, and we're you know, like, oh, yeah, just take it because yeah. We're, yeah. And there we're was, gonna there was have a, a, an orchestra this big again. And, you know, he, Garth was the kind of guy you'd, he'd say, do you need a soprano? And Stephen say a soprano. Yeah. I could use one more soprano. Because no, I, I, I note at the end of this song and we needed somebody to hit it and he'd hire an extra <laughs> singer just yeah. so that we could get one high note. You know, but, that but I, I wouldn't say yes. I said, I said, I can't justify that. They only hit this note and they hit it three times in a three hour show. And he says, will it make it sound better? And I said, yes, of course it'll make it sound better. And he goes, all right, we're hiring her. Yeah. Mm. So, and, and, and you know, at the time that you're never going to see that again in your life or your career. And, you know, you, you tried to appreciate, you know, all that was being given. And, and ultimately, uh, as the years went by and Ragtime has been done and, you know, again on Broadway and uh, various regional productions and in the West End, uh, you realize that it actually didn't need all of that stuff. And, uh, you know, we've seen more <laughs> pared down versions of the show and, uh, guess what? It, even a, a pared down reduced chamber version mm. really, really works theatrically and musically. So we probably didn't need that soprano. Well, but eventually you got uh, Judy Kay and you got your high note. Yeah. 
That's right. <laughs> well, that, that, we were using <laughs> Judy Kay as a tenor, as an alto, and as a soprano. <laughs> she, can sing, she sings, as Emma Goldman, her character, she sings so low. She's like hitting an uh, E below middle C. And then she goes and, and is hitting like a high A, high B. I mean, it was amazing. She can do anything. Did you deal with the El Doctoro at all? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I did him all the time. I mean, he was fabulous. I loved him a lot. I must oh, say. okay. Because I spoke to uh, his wife once and I said, Tell me what you feel about um, what do you remember most? And she said, uh, Being married to him, I wanted to kill him every day we were married. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I, I, luckily, I wasn't married to him and I didn't see him every day. But, you know, he, he really loved the show, he loved us. Um, I have a one of the most beautiful notes that he ever wrote to me is framed on my wall. Uh, you know, he was very warm to me anyway and, and lovely. And I think he was beyond proud of the show. He felt that it had fleshed out his novel in some way, which it did, because, you know, the it, when you read that novel, it's so rich and it's so deep, but all the characters have equal weight. And the, the emotions are kind of hidden in between the lines, but they're not spelled out in the novel. So that's where all the songs, you know, found a way to get into the world coming out of the, out of the lines. And um, it, I just loved him. He was, he was great. He, he was funny because he loved his secondary characters so very much that, you know, he was forever trying to get us to do a full big old number for Henry Ford, which <laughs> we did, but J.P. Morgan or, you know, people, you know, who we, we were trying to get something in for all of his characters, but he, he felt that they all had equal weight. And, you know, we had decided that the fictional characters would be the principal characters mm -hmm. and the, um, the celebrity characters would be sort of the, the satellites that circled around them and um you know but he so his notes were often not helpful and um occasionally a bit um testy because we had cut something or other on you know one of his favorite secondary uh -huh. Uh -huh. But he was great he was just great and of course that book was the bible for all of us in particular yeah. parents you know um, and anytime we would get stuck in the writing of the show we would always go back to that novel and there was always something that was so illuminating that would get us immediately back on track or give us new ideas. And uh, it was really helpful. I mean, his, his notes on character were actually very interesting and very helpful, but his notes on what if there's a song about this, they, they, uh -huh. were, never, they were never helpful. Like uh -huh. you know, for example, when uh, mother first meets Sarah with the baby in the garden, he says, why don't they sing a duet there? And I'm like, uh -huh. no, that's not going to work. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, the movie, was that influential? Uh, did you watch it a lot, a little, not at all? Uh, did he like it? He hated it. Uh -huh. He yeah. hated the movie. And it, we didn't, we, I had seen the movie before. I think sure. we ever knew we were doing the project, but um, yeah. I never watched it that again. Mm -hmm. um, when, once we started on the project, no, he, he, he really disliked it. Um, and was unhappy with it. And I think that's one of the reasons why he was, he wrote into his contract that he had approval of the creative team, that he had uh, input and needed to be, you know, heard during the development process. He needed to be able to give notes and just, and talk directly to the authors and stuff. And, you know, he, I think we were very careful, not careful, but conscious of his, his desire to do something that he liked to have his work, translated in a way that he liked and you know we wanted to honor his work too so yeah 
That's so in fact, um, when you were first proposed as the team, when, when they said, okay, it's going to be Aaron's and Flaherty, did he say who? Did he say, oh, no, um, I'm holding out for Candor and Ebb or anything like that? Well, we, we, we auditioned to get the gig. You know? I know that. Yeah. I know the story about the tapes. Yeah, we do all did submitted our blind tapes, so they nobody knew who was on the tapes. It was you know they were blind submissions, and um, we won, and and that was what happened. But of course, I, I've told this story before, but you know, Garth called me up to tell me that we were hired, and he said, "All right, you got the job." And I said, "Oh, well, that's <laughs> great, thank you so much." He said, "And you know what? If you don't deliver what I want." And you don't listen to me and you don't give me anything great. I'm going to fire you. And that was my first, you know, that was the welcome. Welcome. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So I think there was always the potential, you know, that he had probably, I'm guessing, said to Dr. O, look, if it doesn't work out, we'll fire them. You know, Mm -hmm. Uh Um, but that never happened, luckily. So, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. Actually, the audition process, it, it was wonderful because I, I knew in my gut that, that we should be writing that score, but we had never written anything that would indicate that. So it's almost like if you're a casting director and you're trying to cast an actor, but they've never done anything remotely what the project is. And uh, just getting the opportunity to write several of these big moments and some of the intimate moments and say that uh, this is our take on ragtime. I, I found it incredibly uh, helpful that we were able to do that. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to uh, reflect back upon your the, the cast that uh, again we've talked about in such an amazing cast brought brought this to Broadway and did it in Toronto. I mean, uh, when did Audra and Stokes first come across the, the material, and 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 was there any discussion after they first uh, looked at it? Well, I remember with with Stokes. Uh, do you, you you must remember John Zendarsic. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Sure. And he, he, used, he used to uh, do a, a performance, uh, uh, yeah, whatever you want to call it, like a, yeah, like a, like a gig where, where he was always pairing up new songwriters with uh, performers. And he said, oh, you should meet this guy, Brian Mitchell. He didn't have a Stokes mm-hmm. in his right. name at that right. point. <laughs> and, and we did uh, a song that Lynn and I had written, and I played for, for Stokes at the uh, uh, St. Paul's. And it was actually something from The Glorious Ones, which we had started before Ragtime. Mm. And uh, I was just so taken by his voice. And he had this really resonant low section, especially. And at that point, I had been thinking of Cole House as more of a tenor. And then all of a sudden, I thought about... Oh, what if that voice and and I just put the two together and uh, I I, I taught him the song at the apartment and my husband Trevor came in and I said, put down your bag, listen to this. And it was the first time I think that Stokes had sang that song. It was in the apartment and he was just in tears and he says, and I said, what do you think? And he says, well, he sings it better than you do. (laughs) (laughs) But, but, but Stokes and Audra were with us and were with the project from the very first reading. And we were lucky, lucky that we had them, you know, for the, for the Broadway debut of the show. I do, I do recall um, we were up in Toronto and we were doing a first read through and, you know, people were singing what they knew and, and stuff. And Audra was sitting there and sitting there and sitting there and sitting there and she would sing in the ensemble numbers but she was just sitting there. And I suddenly said to Stephen, oh, my God, we haven't written anything for the character of Sarah. And we have Audrey oh. McDonald. What the? And then, you know, there was this, the 
and this outpouring of let's write this, let's write your daddy's son and this and that, you know, and, and her score began to develop. But I do remember that moment of watching Audrey McDonald basically sitting mute in a, in a read through. A mm. Yeah. She, she had half of one duet, half of wheels of a dream. Yeah. And then she had that tiny little bit towards the end of act one uh, called uh, president. Mm-hmm. And, and then, and then that was it. And so, so we have to resurrect her in act two somehow we have to. Yeah. So. So, so the, the great thing was having these amazing singing actors uh, embodying the characters. And it's sort of the, the characters then at that point sort of started writing themselves because we were thinking of Audra as Sarah, this, you know, Stokes as Cole House. And, and uh, it, it was great. It was a wonderful time. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, just uh, I, I, I don't know how to explain to people that, we got to see a show with Peter Friedman and Mark Jacoby and Marin Maisie and Audrey McDonald and Brian Stokes Mitchell mm. all at once. Judy Kay, Lynette Perry, and Stephen mm. Sutcliffe. Mm. Sutcliffe. Uh, I mean, uh, you, you touched on it before when you're talking about um, Garth Drabinsky and live entertainment, but uh, did, did you realize at, at that moment uh, what, what you had there? Yes. yeah i mean that it was it was just you know we're we're very um i love casting i love actors i think they're you know having been on that 92nd street y stage myself one you know for five performances i i can only imagine what it's like to be in a show for a sustained period of time it's such a difficult job these people are so brave and so beautiful and you know whenever we cast a a show we're like you know we have to get the, the perfect people for it. And we've had very few, if any, and maybe not even any misfires, you know, we've always been so lucky in our casting because it, I don't know, we just, we, we've been lucky and, and I think sensitive to what we've written and, and we see it in a certain way. And in that show, it was like every role was cast with a home run actor. There wasn't one actor who should have been not in the show. It, it was extraordinary. And to hear them sing en masse and to, to see the, the nuances that everybody brought to even the smallest roles, it was, it was amazing. It was amazing. You know, and Frank Galati was, I think, in, uh, very responsible, too, for allowing the actors, especially the ensemble actors, to find their own characters, to say, who are you? Are you a teacher in Harlem? You know, let, make up a character. What, what did you bring over on that immigrant of your heritage, you know, oh, a bread recipe from your grandfather. Like everybody invented and he encouraged everybody to make so specific their characters. And, um, you know, so I think that was part of the magic of the casting of the show was that everybody was perfect. And even the ensemble people who were hired, not quite knowing or playing, you know, they might play several roles. Even those people were very, very specific in their choices, their character choices. And um, so we were just lucky. And we were just so lucky in that whole experience. It was incredible, you know. And everything you said just even goes right all the way down to Leah Michelle, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and in uh, Toronto, we had Paul Dano, who was a child. Uh, actor. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Oh. Yeah, it's like you know, yeah. They, you know, if you've seen There Will Be Blood, you know he is he is um, Daniel Day Lewis's scene partner in most of that film. And he, was a, he was a terrific actor then. He was well, just he was he plays the the young the brother in the family the the uh, older brother of Little Miss Sunshine, and you know he's he's going. Right. On- Incredible career too, 
yeah, we were very, very lucky. And on, you know, we had Brandon Uranowitz, who's you know two time. I was going to mention that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's hard to believe, uh, at least for me, when I saw the other day that it was uh, twenty years since yeah. Susical opened. Um, yeah. That went fast. Um, <laughs> the, um, it, that one didn't work out as well as uh, you had hoped. And But I, what I want to know is that when it closed, did you say someday we'll be redeemed by this? Because you certainly have been uh, yeah. since it's become such a popular show. And uh, it's so wonderful how the people in regional theaters and high school colleges, et cetera, did not hold the Broadway experience against you and said, no, we're still going to do this show. Did you feel that you would be vindicated? You know what? You always feel that. I <laughs> think of that. You know, because you always wanted to say I was right, you were wrong, and in your head, you you imagine that it'll come back and it'll be embraced. And and in fact, all of those things did happen. I think the the turning point with that show is uh, we did we did a national tour where we, where there were some rewrites, but then we got a chance to rethink the show. The the, the entire show uh, is a theater for young audiences show uh, in Kansas City at a a children's theater there. And that really turned it around. And that became the version that came back to the Lortel theater. And, um, it, it, and it was embraced, you know, by audiences and critics and, you know, it was a much more modest production. It was much more. And you know, of also, I'm sorry, Stephen, didn't mean to. I, I, was, I was just saying it's much more in the spirit of what we had done originally in the workshop, which, which is, I think what the show always wanted to be. And uh, I just wanted to give a little shout out, actually, since we're talking about the the evolution of the show, we we definitely rewrote it. The Coterie Theater definitely was responsible for, you know, saying, let's bring a a shorter, leaner, meaner version of this show into being. But there were two directors who also helped a lot. One was Christopher Ashley, who Mm. led the first national uh, tour of Susical, and he was so good dramaturgically about focusing the show on the relationship between the cat in the hat and Jojo, which we really didn't have in the Broadway version as much. Yeah. It, was, it was key, I think, to making the show, to following that little boy's journey through the show with that cat in the hat as his guide. And that was Chris Ashley. And then Marsha Milgram Dodge, who directed it at the Lucille Lortel, was the one who realized value of pairing it back to you know just small imaginative gestures and you know oven mitts and turkey basters and umbrella skeletons and you know these sorts of things that are just you know you can find stuff in your kitchen and put on susicle you know so um i think that between those two directors the coterie and our intrepid rewriting which is the most important thing that any writer can possibly do in the theater is to know how to rewrite and learn to, to just go and do it. Um, all of that brought the, resurrected the show and, you know, yeah, it gets done. It gets done so much. Now we were, we were in um, Atlanta at the, the uh, junior thespians um, conference and I, there were like four or 6,000, I forget how many kids in the audience, thousands of children in the audience. And we were happened to be on stage being interviewed there. And, um, Tim McDonald, who was the moderator, said, yelled to the crowd, how many of you have done Susical? And every last child in that audience all stood up and raised their hands. And Stephen took a picture from the stage. And so we have this wonderful picture of all these millions of kids with their hands in the air. And, you know, it just, it made me realize that, you know, that's, that was the point of the show all along, that it could be done on a gym floor, <laughs> 
with a, with a mop and a broom and a ladder and you can do susical. And it was such a, it's been such a, such an incredible um, turnaround from that, you know, the pain of the broad, the big Broadway production that just sank like a, you know, a, a stone. So anyway, that, yeah, it, that those, that's one of the good stories of, of a flop. You Did know? I ever tell you guys the Sharon Wilkins story? No, I want to hear it. <laughs> you tell. Sharon played, of course, the sour kangaroo. And uh, uh, I, I, aside from everything else, I recall there was a pro, uh, an issue with Susical with the costumes, right? Oh, there was an issue with everything. Right, right. <laughs> well, there was a change, a, a major change in the cost in the costumer. Right. Isn't that correct? From, right. uh, yes. William Ivy Long. Yeah. Right. And so and so apparently Sharon, as I'm told, uh, she out of town, she had a, a, a kind of a comical sort of costume. Uh, and then when it got to Broadway, she was in a really quite a beautiful, mm-hmm. long flowing robe type of thing and so bruce glickus the photographer mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. said to her sharon uh what happened you you know you had that one costume and then now you now you have this completely different costume and she said they made me beautiful baby they made me beautiful you know honestly that out of town for every last person sets costumes lighting everything uh, it was it was so painful to this day it makes me want to cry for everybody involved we were clinging to this sinking ship with our fingernails we did you know i at one point i said to our agent can we get out of this can we just pull the show and put everybody out of their misery and he said no you'll be sued for millions of dollars (laughs) okay then i guess we won't do that but um, you know, it was it was really tough, and everybody went through it. And you, I'm sure you know about the 20th anniversary. We just had a a big Zoom get together with the original yeah. company, and um, it was fabulous. It took three and a half hours. We were all on Zoom together, at hearing from each and every person what they felt about that experience. And you know, there was every permutation of you know sadness joy some people adopted children rosie o'donnell was on the call you know she facilitated several adoptions in that company um it it was a a very emotional time for everybody and when all is said and done they couldn't be more proud that they had created helped to create susical i I think there were a lot of uh friendships and you know families that were created during that time yeah uh and and you know it it definitely was a difficult experience but there was a sense of love between this group of people that in the middle of this darkness. And then somebody pointed out in the, in the middle of the call, and here we are in the middle of a global pandemic, this is darkness. <laughs> mm. And we're loving speaking to one another and reconnecting to one another. And it just felt like the same thing, but a, you know, a bigger scale. <laughs> so uh, it, it, it was great getting a chance to speak with everybody and, and hearing what they were up to. And um, they, they reminded me on this call of something I had completely forgotten about. There was a, a box and like two or three of them had to cram into this box. Oh yeah. And then a fart came out of the box and every night the sound was different. And they, they said, we never knew what the sound was going to be. <laughs> I totally blanked that out to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> We have just uh, passed the one-hour mark. I want to ask one last question of Lynn uh, before we let you go. We've taken so much of your time this morning. Lynn, um, writing lyrics, it, 
Uh, do, do you have a preference or does it matter to you whether or not you are writing for a well-developed character like a Rocky or, uh, you know, a, a Sarah or somebody else in Ragtime? Or was it once in the silent left you with a blank canvas and you were able to write something free? Uh, you know, do you have a preference there and do you labor over your uh, lyrics mm-hmm. or, or are they written and done and you move on? Gee, that well. Let's see. What time is it here? It's eleven. <laughs> <laughs> For the next hour. For the next hour, I will, about, I will answer that, that. That many questions all rolled into one. I think basically, you know, I love words. I love poetry. I love music. Um, I am inspired to write lyrics by many, many, many different things. I love getting music first if I can. Ring it out of Stephen Flaherty or whoever, because mm-hmm. there's, there's music. <laughs> tells me what to write. I, I, I find it so evocative and, and emotional. Characters tell me what to write. They tell me what they want to say, their language. Book writers who've written beautiful dialogue like Terrence McNally did, these beautiful flights of monologue that almost could be poetry, they feel like songs to me. They, I see lyrics in that. Um, we're working on a new show that um, we got shut down in March. In uh, Florida. In Florida. Yeah. We're working on a show called Knoxville which is based on A Death in the Family by James Agee, which is a very, very Pulitzer Prize-winning novel mm-hmm. that I had actually never read. And when I first opened it to read it, knowing I was going to be working on Knoxville, the, the language in that book made me burst into tears, and I immediately knew that we had to and could write this musical because there was so much lyrical writing in, in the book. So I don't know if that answers the question, but it, it can come from anywhere. It usually for me starts either with music or with some beautiful prose. Um, very rarely does it just come out of the blue, you know, uh, at where I sit down and say, oh, I'm inspired to write a lyric. That doesn't happen too often. I can write on assignment because I've done that for years. You know, if I have to write a song for you know, such and such, I can do that, but it's not my favorite way of writing. I really like to kind of soak up the the feeling and the, the, the word pictures that come from, um, from, you know, a book or a novel or, or the music in a, in, you know, just a piece of music. Um, yeah, that's, that's sort of what I like to do. And as I said, I'm usually trying to get music out of Stephen first because. Yeah. Uh, for, for, for ragtime, um, Lynn asked me, can you write some music first? And so I just started writing different sketches. So it, it was almost like creating musical fabric. And like, the, and I said, oh, I think this could be something for Cole House and Sarah, and it and it wound up in fact being the, the middle of a lo- much longer song called New Music. So uh, a lot of the songs were written from the inside out rather than from the beginning to the end. And uh, you know, Lynn is really inspired by music. So uh, uh, for the last for the current show we're working on for Knoxville, most of that was music first. Mm-hmm. Those first couple of notes of ragtime on the piano, mm-hmm. they're, they're so iconic. Mm-hmm. Did, mm-hmm. How, that took a while. How? For, how did that happen? <laughs> it, it took a while for me to get that. Uh, uh, but uh, Terrence had written, uh, uh, he, he wrote a treatment first. And in the, the, the first scene, he had a young uh, child from New, New Rochelle, the, the little boy, mm-hmm. uh, listening to... Uh, Cole House Walker Jr. play uh, a rag, and then he created. Then he had a passage from Doctor that said what this music felt like, what this music sounded like, 
and uh, I was trying to write it and I, nothing was coming up. And I realized I had put myself in the wrong character. I had put myself in the, um, in the head of Cole House. And in fact, uh, I needed to be the little boy listening. So I just put myself into his head and I just waited until the notes came and they just came out. And, and it, re- it was really honestly Cole House playing and not me. But I took credit for it in any way. <laughs> well, you know, this brings up something else entirely. One of the things I've noticed on the Legacy album is the fact that there are so many arresting vamps. And uh, you have become uh, the new vamp king, um, <laughs> uh, succeeding John Kander. Uh, you are next in line now. And uh, terrific vamps. And uh, right away, it, it tickles the ear and makes you know, oh, I'm going to like this song. Oh, so good. Congrats. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I don't think of vamps, and especially with art songs. I, I like to think of them as motifs. <laughs> it's funny. John Kander said to me that he doesn't know what all the commotion is when people talk about his vamps uh, because he doesn't see them as extraordinary or, or anything much. But um, so, again, you, what you just said was sort of a second cousin to that as well. Okay. <laughs> Well, Stephen and Lynn, thank you yes, so much for spending some time yes. with us on Broadway Radio. Really appreciate it. Broadway mm-hmm. Records uh, release of Legacy, which is uh, two song cycles, uh, is going to be available on December 11th at BroadwayRecords.com. We'll have links to that in the show notes, and also we'll throw in that uh, lyrics and lyricist, the 92nd Y from thank December 18th as well, because thank we're all. Stage access. That's who's putting it out. So that would be great. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Thank you so much, Stephen and Lynn. And uh, after your next one comes out, please come and talk with us again. We'd love to. Just have us. Later sold the sheep to settle a debt. I buy and sell and barter and get. Yet I am not admonished. Tonight I found I was all used up Help gone home and babies abed Alone with Helen, talked a while Reviewed the week and cleared my That was uh, double your money for here on Broadway Radio. Mm-hmm. It was uh, really wonderful. I didn't get a chance to really get into Anastasia or My Favorite Year right, or things yeah. like that. So yeah. we'll have to have them again back uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> soon and talk a little bit about that. So before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That we each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it will be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, there's many ways to get to us uh, other than listening to us on Apple Podcasts. iHeartRadio plays us, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to or find a podcast, you can find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today, including... Uh, uh, Legacy at Broadway Records and uh, the uh, lyrics and lyricists at uh, 92nd Street. Why well, I have to find that one and we'll throw that in the show notes as well. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? Frank Sinatra recorded Good Thing Going for Merrily We Roll Along, which ran only 16 performances. Yet, it wasn't the shortest running show to have a song recorded by Sinatra. What was? Well, the show I had in mind was Hot September, a 1965 musical that played no performances on mm. Broadway for a closed out of, out of, after its one out-of-town tryout in Boston. 
But before that happened, Sinatra recorded Golden Moment from that show on his 1965 album, My Kind of Broadway. Uh, by the way, on that disc, Sinatra included They Can't Take That Away From Me and Nice Work If You Can Get It, which were not songs from Broadway musicals, but from films. Of course, they both wound up in Crazy For You 27 years later, so perhaps Sinatra wasn't wrong, but prescient. <laughs> not counting Michael Portantier, who knew it, uh, Paul Witte was the first to get it, followed by Mike Meany, Richard Carey, Brigadude, J. Aubrey Jones, Steve Bell, Jack Leshner, and Jake Leonard. Credit where it's due. Tony Janicki said that Sinatra recorded Guess I'll Hang My Tears Out to Dry from the musical Glad to See You, which in 1944 played an out-of-town tryout in Philadelphia and then called it a life. So as Tevye says, he's right too, as was Jake Leonard, who also mentioned that one. But I forgot about that one. This week's question, what musical that Sondheim worked on was the very first in any way, shape, or form to make a reference to Shakespeare. Hmm. All right. If you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. I grow. Something beautiful